Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday Message. Please head over to our website, BethelBrandon.ca, to figure out how we can best serve you. We are kind of going through the book of John. And uh, so we're kind of at the end of the second chapter. If you have your uh, Bible apps, turn it to, uh, to John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. And I was wanting to talk about what do you do to escape the system? System, there's a system? Yes, there's a system. And um, sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes we don't know about it. Sometimes we're a part of it and don't even realize it. And as I speak, this may resonate with a lot of people. I think that we have lost a lot of people to the system. Well, if you take a look in the Bible, you'll realize that one of the biggest challenges that Jesus had in his ministry was to come against the system, right? That there were a group of holy people, and they wanted to ensure their holiness to the point that not only did they, they want to be obedient to the law, but in their zeal to be obedient to the law, they created 600 other laws that would help them from keeping the original law. And soon what happened was you couldn't tell the difference between the one and the other. It was a system. And whenever we seek to harness faith or control, um, control uh, God in any way, we lose out on knowing Jesus. System always makes it harder to serve Jesus. As you realize that? Kind of know what I'm talking about? It's there. It's still here today. We still have it. It's the thing that bugs me. It was the thing that bugged me when I first started coming to know Jesus like 30 years ago. 40 years ago. Wow. Here's the thing. Whenever we begin to domesticate or administrate God, we will ultimately incarcerate our faith. Isn't that true? When we seek to domesticate or administrate God, we ultimately incarcerate our faith. What happens is we begin to try to control God as if that is possible. Really, you can't do it. But for some reason in our our way, we try to somehow form this way that we can figure God out what he's going to do, how he's going to move. And eventually that becomes constricting. Eventually there becomes a code of ethics that we have that goes beyond the code of ethics that we actually should be living for. And we're made to feel guilty for certain things that are happening that actually aren't even in Scripture. We pursue, we pursue a written down, an instituted holiness rather than a natural holiness. You know what I mean by that? That many times we want to behave and act a certain way because we love Jesus that we have chosen to follow him. And because we passionately love and follow him, we say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to follow this way. But when all of a sudden the system takes over, there becomes a code that takes it from the heart to all of a sudden just this kind of way that we're supposed to live. You know what I'm talking about? I know some of you are kind of looking around here saying, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't believe that that's true. I think that all of us have suffered from the system to one form or another. Eventually, the constriction becomes coercive. 
All of a sudden, you feel forced to live a certain way, even though it really isn't scriptural to live that way, but it's just the thing that we have happened, and eventually, the faith that we have starts to become counterfeit. It becomes like a form of godliness, but it's lost its power. It's lost its passion, and we begin to develop what I call a consumer mentality Christianity. That it leads to a faith that seeks out what is beneficial to me. It seeks to find compromise to get what is best personally for myself while pacifying the conviction to follow the claims of Jesus. It's like a pseudo-spirituality created to be half-obedient while still feeling like I am serving God. Wow. Someone once said to me, you know, there's a fine line between preaching and meddling. Pastor Mike, are you not meddling now or are you supposed to be preaching? Well, hopefully I'm not. Hopefully I'm kind of in line with what God is trying to say. All I know is this. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I discovered something huge. I grew up in a home that didn't know Jesus. I had friends that led me to Jesus, and then I went home to a home that was not Christian. had nothing to do with spirituality or anything like that. And so what I had to do is I fell in love with Jesus. And as I attended church, I had to deal with with the system. And as I became a youth pastor, I realized that that wasn't the same experience as a number of kids who had grown up in the pews. For them, they had to grow up and deal with the system. And from that, they had to fall in love with Jesus. And to me, that was much more difficult. And so as I keep on speaking of this, wave your hand at me if you know what I'm talking about, about the system. We have lost people. We have lost children because of the system. And it was something that was very much an issue. Maybe you are here and you're new to faith. Or maybe you are watching and you don't even know Jesus. And you say, what is this guy talking about? Well, I believe... I believe if we can get ourselves to the point where we say there is a system and a Pentecostal system might be different than the Baptist system, but it is still a system. It is a way that we try and harness and control God in a way which is comfortable for us. And the thing is this, we can't do it. And Jesus begins to show that in his ministry. So over the next couple of weeks, what I'd like to do, hopefully I can do it. I would like to show to you how Jesus dealt with the system. Because if you don't deal with the system, it begins to affect not only the way you think, it just begins to affect your soul. And not only your soul, it can, it, can, it can affect us as a community. Are we following Jesus? Are we living, are we loving Jesus naturally and fully? Are we acting like a church that loves Jesus, not like an, a church which is following the system? And it can happen globally. It can happen in the Church of Canada. It can happen throughout the world. So, so this is something which is important for us to talk about, to look at. Now, last week we were talking about the first miracle, Jesus turning water into wine. Remember, and I was kind of saying that in the book of John, there was just like kind of seven, eight miracles, but seven that they called the seven signs. John kind of called them signs. He didn't even call them miracles. He called them signs. And the first one was, was known, as, known as the sign of conversion, And we talked about wine and, and the fact that wine represents joy. And I, I left us last week by asking this question. Have we run out 
of wine. Where are you in the joy department? We need to be the most joyous people around. So now there's a change of scenario as you go from verses 13 to 23. It's a night and day type of thing, isn't it? Now, the first one was a sign of conversion. And then what happens is he goes from Cana of Galilee where the wedding is, and it says that he goes down to Capernaum. Now, the thing is, Capernaum is north of Cana. And then it says from there, Passover comes, and in Passover they drive, or they drive, I guess they don't get in the bus, they have to walk, don't they? 85 miles up to Jerusalem. Now, I've always thought that north was up, south was down. The thing is, is this. If you were south of Jerusalem, and they are talking about going to Jerusalem, they would say, we're going up to Jerusalem. What's with that? Now, going north is up, and south is down. I don't get it. Well, at that particular time, they didn't take a look at a map geographically. They took a look at things topographically. They took a look at the elevation. And Jerusalem was at the highest place. So if you were going to Jerusalem, whether you're west, north, east, or south, you're going up. And so it talks about that. That's something which is important for us to think of as we, as we take a look and as we study Scripture. And, and John's gospel centers upon Jerusalem. Three Passovers, Jesus in Jerusalem, and it is recorded. The other gospels talk about his ministry throughout Galilee. So join with me now as I go into John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, and, and hopefully God speaks to our heart in some manner here. John 2, verse 13 says, when, I was all, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you give us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered him, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But Jesus, but the temple that he had spoken of was of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Interesting passage of scripture. Can I give you some details before we get into some of the, the, the great things that God has to say to us? For those of you who don't know and are unaware of Jewish tradition in that, the Passover was the meal. The Passover was the place that you saw, but it was also followed by a week which was called this Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it was like a week celebration. And it was huge. It was something which, is, which was crazy, crazy big. And it was packed. Now, Flavius Josephus. Isn't that a great name? Flavius. How did we lose that name, Flavius? Kind of rolls off the tongue. 
If I were to have a fourth child and it was a boy, I would call that boy Flavius. My wife might have something to say against it, but she's in Ottawa visiting the kids. So I can say whatever I want on Sunday morning, and I don't have to suffer for a week. Anyways, Flavius Josephus was the historian. Many of the facts that we know about Israel and about the Jewish people at that particular time are due to this historian. And in his notes, he records one particular Passover time in or around the time that Jesus' ministry existed. He said at this particular festival, 256,000 lambs were sacrificed. Isn't that incredible? Does that kind of change your vision of things? Oh, they kind of, they kind of barbecued up 100 sheep. Well, no, 256,000. And when a sheep was shared by about 10 people for the meal, if you do the math, there were over 2 million people in Jerusalem. The place had swelled up. And because that was the place that you were supposed to sojourn to, there were hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people who came in to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus was traveling for, to Capernaum, from Capernaum to to um, Jerusalem, the roads were probably packed. He wasn't the only one who was traveling. There were hundreds of thousands, if not a million people, who had swelled into Jerusalem at this particular time. And so with that being the case, they entered into the area which was the temple. Now this is temple number two. It's not temple number one. It's not Solomon's temple. This is the temple that Herod had built and started about 16 years before Jesus was even born. And what he did is he did such an intricate work of building this temple. It's probably the greatest thing that, that Herod had built. He shaved off the top of the mountain. He excavated that mountain so that it was flat at the top and he put the, the temple there. But he also put what was called the temple courtyard and he walled it off. And it was basically, as, as, if my study is right, 36 acres was where, was where the temple uh, courtyard existed, which is huge. But when you're talking about millions of people, I would assume that it would be pretty, pretty busy. And so for me to kind of go from here, I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the conflict, which we read about. Then I want to talk about what I will call the cryptic conversation. And then from the, the conversation, I want to talk about the, com the conversion of the disciples. Hey, didn't they already get converted? Yeah, yeah, they did. But let's get to that a little bit later. It's interesting when we talk about this particular passage of Scripture. We go from one extreme to another, don't we? Wedding feasts, Cana, Galilee, joyous events, wonderful things happen. To a whip, wham! Wham, wham, from joy to judgment. It goes from a private ministry to a public ministry. So what was happening in this event that made it as bad as it was? Well, what was taking place, and this had been taking place probably for a number of years, was that Jesus was about to expose the exploitation of people 
who were simply trying to worship Jesus. They were making money. They were making lots of money. If you consider the profit of one person and you multiply it by 250,000, it not only is a side hustle, it is an industry to take advantage of people who just simply wanted to serve God. So how did they do this? Well, there's two ways. The first way was this. That when you went to the temple, you had to use temple currency. You couldn't use a Roman coin because the Roman coin had the image of an emperor and they assumed that that emperor was God. So you can't use a Roman coin. What is wrong with you? Thinking that you could use a Roman coin to, to do business in the temple courts. You needed a shekel, a Turian shekel, because it had a certain amount of silver involved with it. So if you were going to be coming to worship God and you were wanting to give an offering, or if you were wanting to purchase an animal sacrifice, you had to pay to change your money. That's why they called them the money changers. That's what they had to do. But the problem is, this came at about a usury fee between 20, 15 to 20%. So if you, if you gave a Roman dollar, you would get 80% back. Again, multiply this by the amount that would be spent at that particular time. The other thing is this. If you're traveling 85 miles from Capernaum to Jerusalem, it's really, really hard to bring a sacrificed animal. It has to be a, an animal without blemish. And so you would have to carry that or bring it with you. But there was a solution. You could buy one there. The thing is, you would be paying a high price, a high, high price, two, three, four times as much. A $25 sheep, because it was a sacrificial lamb, became $100, maybe. I'm not too sure exactly what the fee was, but we all know that it was a fee of some sort. So you, you thought, I am a very conservative Jewish person, I'm going to bring my own sheep. They could bring their own sheep. And when they brought it, they said, no, 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 no. That sheep needs to be examined by one of our qualified sheep examiners. And they went on a farm for a year to a year and a half to study whether something which was pure or whether it was not. And so you would have to go through this process if you brought your own sheep. And they would say, you see, there's a little black spot there. Black spot where? Well, you might not be able to see it, but it's there. And I know because I'm qualified. I'm qualified to do it. And so this was the scenario that was going on. There was something taking place that was underhanded. And when you talk about it, when Jesus talks about casting out those who sold, the actual literal term was the sellers. And because it has a definite article in the Greek, it talks about the fact that these were a people that were known in Jerusalem. And so what happens is these people had created a level of making and exploiting people at the expense of worshiping God. You see where we're going with this? Sanhedrin, well, they had nothing to do with this. They, they wouldn't do anything like that. The Jewish authorities wouldn't do anything like that. But the place that they had to sell it was at the temple gate. And so it is quite likely that the religious authorities, the temple, was getting a huge, huge 
kickback from this. While they could sit there and say, hey, it's nothing that we are doing, they knew exactly what they were doing. It was happening for a long period of time. So it's kind of interesting when you take a look at that. You take a look at all the things which are happening and taking place. It had been going on for years. And let me just say this. This may have been the first time that Jesus did it, but it was likely not the last. If you take the story in John, it was the first thing he did. If you take a look in the other Gospels, it was the last thing or one of the last things that he did. It was something that ended up being the thing that tipped the, tipped the scales in them trying to get rid of Jesus. And it also proves this, that Jesus exposed the sin and they were unwilling to repent of it. I think that that's a big thing, isn't it? So it says this, Jesus made a whip. He didn't bring a whip with him. He didn't buy a whip. He sat down and constructed one. So that basically tells me that he had time to think this thing through. It was not something that happened on an impulse. And it wasn't violence that he was ensuing here, but exerting his righteous authority. And truth is that subconsciously people and authorities knew what they doing was wrong. You can't tell me that they didn't think some days, I don't think that this is right. But sometimes things that become familiar tend to become things that are legitimate. You can become callous to sin and it eventually becomes not a sin to you. You begin to lose the guilty feeling. If you can keep the same sin up and forget about it, eventually you will not see it. Is that not true? Was the case that was happening, the thing that was going on. And it appears that it was an offense that was arrestable, but they didn't arrest Jesus. And why was that? Well, the only thing that people can think of is this. That although the authorities didn't like it, the people who were getting ripped off did. They thought this is good. Finally, someone says something. And so he endeared himself to the people, but not to the leadership. And there's lots of things to observe. And the first one is what I said. There is a subtle corruption that happens in the temple that we need to be aware of. Because the temple at that time was a physical location. But today it's us. It's our bodies. And what happens in our lives where we just take a casual look towards sin and it becomes so casual that we begin to ask ourselves, is it even wrong at all? And soon what happens is we are engaged in something which is wrong, but we no longer feel bad about it. It becomes part of the norm of our life. The other thing is this. If you take a look at John chapter 2, the whole verse, Here's something that I've discovered. That we like to savor the wine, but we don't like to favor the whip. Right? We like the wine Christianity. I don't know if we really like the whip Christianity. Or what happens is we favor one or the other. Oh, I love Jesus and Jesus loves me. And it's all about loving Jesus. And there's nothing else about loving Jesus. I don't care about my life or anything else. All I care about is loving Jesus. Or, if you serve Jesus, you better bet your, 
your, get your life right with God because it is all about the whip. It's all about living a consecrated life. And if you don't live a consecrated life, what about love? Well, hold on a second. It has to do with the consecration. You can love Jesus unless you consecrate your life. We have both, don't we? We go from the sign of conversion to the steps of cleansing. And it always works that way, folks. If all of a sudden you ask Jesus into your life and you see the miracles and you see God restore joy in your life, there will always be that time where God seeks to cleanse us. He seeks for us to be holy continually. God is always working to cleanse the place of his habitation. And today it is us. He is continually cleaning us out, purifying us. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. For the zeal of your house has eaten me up. That God is always zealous of being in a clean house. And that's something for us to understand. Isn't it true? It's true. It's, it's true. So we go from what is called the conflict to what I will call the cryptic conversation. That is funny, the cryptic conversation, because it is interesting that, um, that his actions had, according to the Jewish people, the leaders at that time, had wrecked things for them. Right? This is terrible. All of a sudden, you're about to worship God through, through the sacrifice of an animal. We're going to celebrate Passover. And here, this nut job comes in. He starts whipping things around. And he ruined their worship. It's kind of like... It's kind of like someone coming in the middle of the sermon, taking my King James Bible and ripping it to shreds. It's kind of like during the worship, someone has this huge foghorn. It's blowing this huge foghorn in the middle of worship, destroying the worship experience. And that's what Jesus did in the eyes of the authorities. He said, you kind of destroyed our worship experience. You kind of messed things up. But there's a verse that they were also cognizant of at this time. Malachi 3, verses 3 and 4. Let me just say this. Let me just read it. He said, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. They may offer, so that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. They were aware of that scripture. They knew that it was real. So they say, what right do you have? Who are you to come in here and disrupt the worship of God? Now, nobody likes to be called out. But when they say, what sign do you have? Jesus could say, do I really need a sign when you are ripping people off? Do I really need to go into the fact that you are making millions or you are making a whole lot of money off the backs of people who are poor and can hardly get here to worship? But he doesn't. What he does is what he engages in is what I will call Purposeful miscommunication. Have you ever had miscommunication? It's a terrible thing, isn't it? Sometimes it's just, it's like, what is going on? You ever have a chance where you're talking about one person and someone else is talking about another person you think is the same, same person and it's not? I think Joe is a terrible guy. What do you mean Joe's a terrible guy? Joe's a wonderful guy. Oh, Joe. He's just, he just doesn't have it all together. I, I don't know what to know. You mean he doesn't have it all together? He does have it all together. He's a wonderful person, like I said. Now, he's kind of a homely guy. No, you mean Joe's a wonderful-looking guy. Then we find out 
that the Joe he is talking about is someone who's on the worship team, and I'm talking about a Joe who's in the audiovisual room. Wonderful guy. Doesn't know who to pick for in sports, but I can't hold that against him. Joe's a wonderful guy. I remember a conversation where someone said, I hit black ice. The other person said, thought he said, instead of black ice, said black eyes. What? You got hit and got black eyes? Happens all the time, don't you think? The worst, the worst scenario was a situation that I had read about of a lady who was from England traveling to go to school in Switzerland. And so she goes to this little community that she falls in love with and she talks to the pastor and the pastor says, what would you like to live here? She says, yeah, I'd like to live in a place just a little bit out of town, but not too far. Do you have a room that I can rent out? And so he went and took her to this place and she just fell in love with this place and, and looked at all the details and she said, I will take this place, I will take it. So she goes home and as she's going home, she realizes that she didn't know where the water closet was, the WC. Now in Britain, the water closet is the place that you go to the washroom. It is the place where the toilet exists. And so she writes a letter to the pastor and says, I'm looking forward to coming. One thing I didn't know was I didn't find out where the WC was. In Switzerland, it's not a WC, not too sure. So he looks up and does some, some, some studying, and he says, WC, oh, she is talking about Wayside Church. Obviously, she's talking about Wayside Church. And so what the pastor does is he writes a letter back to her. He says, I look forward to your move regarding your question about the location of the WC. It's situated only two miles from your room. You have rented in the corner of a beautiful grove of pine trees. The WC has an a maximum capacity of 229 people, but not, but not that many people usually go on weekdays. I suggest that you plan to go on Thursday evenings where there's a sing-along. The acoustics are remarkable, and the floppies, the, the, the happy sounds of so many echo throughout the WC. Sunday morning, they are extremely crowded. The locals tend to arrive early, and many bring lunches to make a day of it. Those who arrive just in time can usually be squeezed into the WC before things start, but not always. Best to go early if you can. It may interest you to know that my own daughter was married in the WC. <laughs> and it was there uh, that she met her husband. I remember how everyone crowded in to sit close to the bride and groom. There were only two people to a seat ordinarily occupied by one. But our friends and family were happy to share. I will admit that my wife and I felt particularly relieved when it was over. <laughs> because of my responsibilities in town, I can't go as often as I used to. In fact, I haven't been in well over a year. I can tell you, I really miss regularly going to the WC. And he closes by saying this, let's plan on going together for your first visit. I can reserve a seat where you'll be seen by all. <laughs> Sometimes miscommunion, miscommunication happens. And you will find in Jesus' ministry that there were times where he was purposely miscommunicating. Many times there are reasons for that. One reason would be that he wanted 
some people to hear the message and other people not to. There was something that had to do with that whole process. Sorry, folks. Just double checking. Test, test, one, two. Test, test, one, two. I'm not too sure if I'm on. Am I on? Can, am I, have I turned off? Do I have to speak louder? Well, that doesn't help our Spanish. Sometimes he used cryptic language to hide it from some, but reveal it to others. Other times, he spoke infinite truths that were hard to, be, to be comprehended by the finite mind. And so he used illustrations to kind of do the best that he could. But there are certain things that you will experience in heaven that can't be comprehended in earth. And the other, thing, the other reason, and I believe this is the case here, he wanted to make truth a delayed discovery. Have you ever found that? That sometimes there are truths that you will learn after they are spoken? Sometimes you'll be in a service and God will all of a sudden mention a scripture that means nothing to you, and then three weeks later, something happens and that scripture becomes alive to us. It's kind of interesting as Jesus goes through this scenario. Destroy this temple and I will restore it in three days. He could have been saying it this way. Destroy this temple, and I will restore it in three days. He could have been pointing to himself, but they still didn't get it. And you're left to ask the question, what is this conversation about? Well, let me remind you that the reason that John is writing this letter was because at this time there were people who weren't convinced that Jesus was actually the Son of God. And so as God, as, as he begins to say these things, he is exhibiting his power and authority as deity with the power to resurrect himself. And he was saying something to the readers at that time, but also to us today that he was indeed God. And he says, I will do it myself. If you read in Romans, you will see the one point where it says that God the Father rose him from the dead. If you take a look at Romans chapter 8, it says that the Spirit raised him from the dead. It was a Trinitarian issue. It's incredible how God moves and works in those times where we don't really comprehend it ourselves. Which leads to the last point, if I could. The conversion of disciples. Now, one thing I said last week was this. One of the reasons the wedding, the water into wine was such a big thing was because it caused the, the disciples to believe. Now let's read on in verse 23. This is what it says in verse 23. After he had raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Notice the difference. They believed on the sensation of the miracle. After he was resurrected, they believed on the sureness of the Word of God. And there's a difference. I believe that they, at the beginning, believed. But I believe that after he had resurrected and they got to know everything, they believed even more. So belief is instantaneous, but belief is incremental. And I believe that 
Belief is continuing to happen in our hearts and in our lives. Belief is an important thing. But they believe because that's what the Word of God says. You can believe for a number of reasons. You have different types of belief and why you believe. It all depends on what kind of lens you're wearing. You can see things through the lens of science. You can believe through the lens of science. Or you can believe through the lens of society or the lens of scrutiny or suspicion or the lens of self-reservation or the situations that have had in the past. But the Word of God tells us that we see things through the lens of Scripture. It was a thing that had made a difference. And one thing you will find as you go through the book of John, there is a Greek word used over and over and over again, over a hundred times in the book of John. The word is pistu. It means believe. And it's mentioned to believe over a hundred times in the book of John. Almost half of the occurrences in the New Testament are found in John. As a matter of fact, there's only two chapters in the fourth gospel, in the gospel of John, where the word believe isn't mentioned in some way, shape. Perform. So the whole process and what God is trying to do through the sake of John is this. I want to change your belief. Where are you in terms of your belief? Maybe you are believing because something had happened in your life, you've experienced a miracle. Or maybe you have stopped believing because you didn't see the miracle. Where are you? on the belief continuum. Are you at a belief crossroads? And the question I have for us, and the important thing we have to ask ourselves is, how far do you go to passionately follow Jesus where you say, God, I believe you, and I set my whole soul on the fact that you are a God who can be believed? Is there something that we need to believe together as we pray, as we close? And I'm not too sure what, what uh, area you are in. And you're at a point where you say, I've been praying for this, and that just hasn't happened. Can we pray together? Is there a way that I can believe with you for God to move? Because with John, that's what it's all about. I'm just going to close in a word of prayer. I'm going to hand things over to Pastor Glenn. So God, I just thank you for how great a God you are, that you are powerful in every way. And as we dig deeper into your word, we realize that you are continually working on us growing in our belief. And I would believe and I would understand that there are some people who are struggling in that regard. That there are some of us who are just saying, you know, I believed at one time, but now I don't know, things have happened and, and lots of stuff has taken place and I seem to have lost that ability. I pray, God, that you will restore belief. That you allow the presence of the Holy Spirit to rise up within us, Father. To not believe because of the moment, but believe because your word says that it is true. So I just pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to move in people's lives. May you be lifted up, oh God, I pray. Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.